Welcome to Canine Hijinks, the podcast for those who want to explore more ways to have fun with their dogs and perhaps discover the wider world of training and dog sports. It may even convert the casual pet owner into a dog sport enthusiast. Join me, Alyssa Looney. And me, Whitney Taylor, as we share our dog training journeys, as well as resources you can use to enhance your life with your canine friends. Today, we are excited to have our very first guest with us. Um, before we join into the content, though, Whitney, what did you do with your dogs over the last couple of weeks? Uh, the last couple of weeks for me have been all about Sprite and really transitioning her training to um, sort of more what you would think of as agility. It's all still foundation, but thinking about you know, getting started in jump training and some of those kinds of things now that she is getting dangerously close to being a year old. Whew, I know. Fun. I've been working on teaching my young puppy, Alegria, how to turn left and right and the difference between sitting, standing, and laying down. And she's starting to actually know what each of those mean. It's <laughs> exciting. I know. You wouldn't think about verbal training. Um, do Making sure that they know the difference between sit and down is surprisingly hard you realize very quickly that they just pick one of the two it's not usually yeah. very strong Liz what about you what have you been up to with your dogs um we've been kind of taking it easy we went to the mountains last weekend and uh, stayed in a friend's cabin and just did a little bit of walking and there's actually a lot more snow than we anticipated so I didn't get to do the uh <laughs> exciting amount of hiking that I had hoped for but we still had a nice time they love playing in the snow so that was fun that sounds nice yeah yeah all right. So that all sounds fun today. As mentioned, we have our first guest. Liz Randall is joining us from sunny California. Alyssa and I have known Liz from our agility lives over the past few years, and she is an excellent trainer, and we are very excited to have her with us. We are. So Liz Randall grew up in North County, San Diego, and has worked with animals for her whole life. Growing up in a dog and horse-centric family, she was an avid competitive equestrian by age nine. From riding ponies to Baskin-Robbins near the beach at age five, to working with a herd of more than 100 horses on a guest ranch in Wyoming in her 20s, to flying across the country to compete in New York City at the Westminster Agility Championship with her rescued pit bull mix, Phineas. She truly understands what it means to have complex and fulfilling relationships with animals. Liz teaches behavioral and sport lessons locally and nationally, as well as online. She has parlayed her love and talents for working with animals into a career in which she helps dogs and their humans achieve higher levels of communication with each other and beyond. Throughout Southern California, Liz is known in dog sports for not only being a talented trainer of skills, but for having a high-level understanding of canine behavior, which allows her and her students to compete at the highest levels of their chosen sports. Liz competes locally and nationally in agility with her dogs. She also competes with and has titled her dogs in nosework, barn hunt, and lure coursing. Not only does Liz own and run the front of the house of Dogs Abound, overseeing daily business operations, but she also has the Dogs Abound training program using scientifically based positive methods and has her certified pet dog trainer credential since 2011. 
She is continuously learning new methods and theories of dog training, health, and overall wellness, and strives to be on the forefront of what is best for our dog's well-being. Dogs Abound has a full-time training department, currently with five CPDTKA (laughs) trainers on staff. Welcome, Liz. Hi. Hi, Liz. Why don't why don't you tell us about uh, the dogs that you currently live with? Okay, so I currently have four dogs. Uh, my oldest dog, Forrest, he's somewhere in the thirteen to fourteen year old range, and he was my first agility dog. Uh, he just kind of hangs out these days. He's an Italian Greyhound mix, so he likes to be under blankets. So that's kind of where he is most of the time these days. Uh, my pit bull mix, Phineas, just turned ten. And uh, he was a fantastic agility dog. And he's unfortunately, thanks to COVID, was kind of unceremoniously retired, I guess, this last year, which is a little, a little tough. But um, I don't know. We, we will. He's, he is not ready to stop working. So we will be looking for other things to keep him occupied. And uh, my middle child, I call her Beatrix. She is six. Uh, she's a board collie. She's a really good girl. I just love her. She's easy. And uh, my youngest dog, Rowan, is almost three, if you can believe that. And um, we're still banging around in novice. We haven't been trialing much, obviously, the last year. And uh, we're just, he's just growing up. He's a boy and we're taking our time. And he's a fantastic dog and I just love him. So and those are all my guys. Collie, my border collie, Jet, met him when was that? A year and a half ago or so at your trial? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they loved each other. Yeah, quite the bromance. (laughs) Bromance that he loves. Yeah, he loves other dogs. So that's that's a good thing. So we heard in your biography that you were into horses as a kid. What led you down the path of dog training in lieu of horse training? Um, I'll be a hundred percent honest. Horses are really expensive (laughs) and at least to do, you know, things the way that, that I would love to do them. And, and, you know, they're, I love horses. I would love to circle back to horses eventually if it ever made financial sense for me. Um, but dogs are just, they're easier. They're there. They live in your house. You know, you want to train a dog, you just look to your right and there's a dog sitting there ready to be trained. And, um, they're just a little more integrated I guess into your life where horses are so much more separate but um I would I I would love to go back to the horses eventually yeah I think that's pretty common yeah uh, yeah it's very common isn't it in our in the agility world for sure awesome so we brought you here today because you have a really unique perspective about three things we're interested in here which is uh dog behavior training sport dog training and dog care in terms of daycare and overnight boarding so let's start with behavior training since that's a lot of what pet owners need whether that's for basic manners or behavioral concerns can you help explain the difference between behavior modification and behavior management and what those might look like to the average pet household yeah, so I, I would probably even parse it a little bit more. I would say, you know, behavior modification training and then behavior management. Um, I talk to my clients a lot, my pet clients uh, chiefly about, you know, they come in here and say, I want you to, you know, I want to train my dog or I want you guys to train my dog or whatever version of that. And uh, I always tell them, you know, yes, we are going to do training. We're going to train your dog some skills. We're going to work to change some behaviors. But before we even get to that, we need to talk about management because, Management is critical for everyone to be successful uh, and not continue and, and to prevent continuing practicing unwanted behaviors. So management looks like 
you know, using baby gates, using leashes, uh, what else, you know, just kind of the setup of your environment, anticipating things that your dog might have a hard time with and rearranging the environment so that uh, those sorts of things are, are minimized. And so that, again, we're not practicing those unwanted behaviors. So management is, is the easy way to say it maybe is, is arranging the environment to prevent behaviors occurring that you don't want to don't want to have occur or to promote behaviors to promote good behaviors and capture good behaviors so that then you uh they're going to be more frequent and be easier to reinforce so they'll happen again so i because i always think of management as um because management is not training right i mean to me that's the important thing it's not training and the the sort of super straightforward example i always think of is it's putting the garbage can on the counter yeah Totally. Right. Yep. That's that's managing the situation. If you put the garbage yep. can on the counter, yep. not all dogs, but for most dogs, then they, they just can't, they don't have exactly. access. And so you have you've managed the the behavior. Exactly. That's a great way to put it. Exactly. That's why my my uh, garbage can has been in the pantry for the last nine years that we lived in the house that we've lived in. <laughs> right. And it's never had an issue. We've never had, had trash, trash slippers. So <laughs> exactly. That's a great way to say it, Whitney. And then, you know, yeah. and then training is actually working to change the dog's behaviors right whether it's strengthening existing behaviors that we like or uh you know training incompatible behaviors to replace you know actions that we don't like training is is the more active and management is the more passive so let me ask you about this example and which one it falls into sometimes when people come to my house i will take a handful of food and throw it on the floor so that the dogs are eating food instead of jumping on the person at the door mm-hmm. Is that training or management? It's probably a little bit of both, frankly, because okay. you're managing the situation by keeping the dogs from jumping, right? So you're just managing the situation yep. uh, by throwing that food. However, if you do that enough times, eventually, theoretically, the dogs would, and if your timing was good, the dogs would start looking for the food instead of the jump, instead of jumping, right? So you may be accidentally training that that non-jumping behavior you're kind of re- you're, you're replacing the jumping with an incompatible behavior of looking to the ground for the food yeah. that makes sense yeah it works really well with my dogs who really love food yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um should we talk about just reinforcement history as a like vocabulary word here since that's sort of a lot of what you're doing in a behavior modification training is building a reinforcement mm-hmm. history. Yeah. So reinforcement history is just kind of a fancy way to uh, talk about what I like to, I have the terminology I like to use is the bank account, right? So I would say for each behavior that we want a dog to, to perform consistently, we need to build a bank account and we start at zero or next to zero. And each time we reward those behaviors that we want uh, we are building up that bank account deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And so the larger the bank account, then at some point we can occasionally take withdrawals and not have to add, you know, necessarily always add back in that reinforcement. But what that happens with the average person is, um, or the average pet owner is they may put little tiny deposits in that bank account when the dog is a puppy, and then they just withdraw, 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 and suddenly they don't have that behavior anymore right so they're bouncing the bank account over and over and then they don't understand when the dog isn't responding so that's kind of the the layman's example for what reinforcement history is and again it's fairly self-explanatory but reinforcement history is just putting tons of reinforcement into that bank account for a specific behavior 
So would you say then that your training is never done? If you expect your dog to come when called, you can't just expect that they've come to you a few different times and you rewarded them for it. And then the next five times you don't reward them. That's not going to hold up over time. Yeah, there's we, we, there's a, some terminology that, you know, some behaviors are cheap and some behaviors are expensive. And for certain dogs, you know, some dogs, you we've all seen those dogs, maybe we've had them, but some dogs just have a natural natural recall, right? They, they always listen, even if I'm not necessarily reinforcing them. However, most dogs aren't that dog and you need to maintain those behaviors. So you may be able to reinforce the dog less frequently over time, but you're still going to need to reinforce those behaviors in some way, shape or form. Awesome. So uh, can you talk about what rules maybe you have in your household and how some clear rules and expectations for your dog tend to help those behaviors and how that might be different than the dominance theories that some trainers ascribe to? Yeah, so I think most dogs like structure. Most dogs, actually, it's a good segue for the, you know, the alpha and the dominance stuff. Most dogs aren't getting up on the couch or sleeping on your pillow or getting into the trash because they're dominant. They're doing those things because in that moment, it feels good. You know, laying on the couch feels better than laying on the tile floor. You know, they're bored, they're left home alone all day, getting in the trash is something to do and they might find something tasty in there, right? They're not doing those things to be dominant. Um, So setting up structure around the household and just making it clear what is allowed and what isn't allowed is going to set the dog up for success. And it's going to, frankly, if you take the time to do it, it's going to drive you less crazy. So um, as far as specific examples, I think dogs really love routine and they love schedules. Um, I find that a lot of dogs that, you know, have anxiety problems, not necessarily, but some dogs that have anxiety problems often can be in environments that aren't really predictable. Um, So dogs like predictability, they like stability, they like knowing what to expect. And so I think more than anything, just basic structure and uh, systems that your dog can anticipate are super important for stability in your household. And we can learn that we inadvertently have those kinds of things going on. So, you know, I've been working at home for a long time now, and my dogs think that around one or two o'clock, they should get to go outside, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? Like they're really good. Mm -hmm. I wake up, I feed them breakfast, they go out, they potty, they go back to sleep, right? They take a a good old long snooze, but then they start showing up at my computer. Fractal likes to shove his ball right into my back. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like, come on, lady, it's time. It's time to go. And it's because I was doing that. I did it enough. I built up that reinforcement yep. history, right? And they're like that it's that time of day, just like they know when it's totally. time to eat. If I if I like close the laptop or look at the computer and go, All right, okay. Like I I don't even know what it is. I say something and the dogs are just like up and like out the door. Like there's yeah. some sort of mannerism <laughs> or some sort of thing that I do when I'm done with my computer stuff and they're like, Yes, and they get up and they just bolt, you know. <laughs> It's border collies too, so they're you, know, you got to add that into the equation. But um, yes, they they pick up on all these little minutia, structures. all those yeah. subtle subtle yeah. cues. <laughs> yes. Well, so if I'm a if I'm a pet owner and um, I've dog that's you know maybe things are like basically fine. Maybe I only have one or two concerns. How do I know when it's time to really seek out a trainer? Like, how do I know when things are sort of in the danger zone or um, when it's time? I mean, the 
snotty answer is that everybody should train their dog, right? <laughs> but, um, that's not realistic, and, and I understand that. So assuming you haven't done puppy training with your dog, you haven't already, you know, gotten that that ball rolling, um, it's really, it's, it's pretty individual. I would say if you want to improve your ability to communicate with your dog or change your dog's behavior in any fashion, whether it's something that, you know, is a true problem or you just find it, you know, entertaining or useful or, or whatever, what have you to, uh, be able to communicate, you know, to train your dog to do X, it doesn't matter what it is, then, you know, reaching out to your trainer would be a good idea. But, you know, dogs, I, one thing that I like to uh, instill in people, you know, dogs don't come out of the womb knowing sit, knowing not to jump on the counters, knowing not to jump on grandma. They don't know these things. We have to help them this, with these things. And some people are just naturally good at, at communicating or, tra- you know, training their dogs on their own. But, most people aren't. And so, you know, having some guidance um, from a qualified professional is always, in most cases, going to really make a big difference. You know, you made a comment there about training that made me think about how having a trainer can help you learn how to tell your dog what to do instead mm-hmm. of only what not to do. Tell them what not to do. Exactly. Um, which can make things a lot clearer for your dog. Yeah, and I think that in some ways the people who are sort of more naturally good at communicating also are maybe just very consistent in how they communicate with their dogs. I kind of laugh at myself, the things I'm like, oh, look at all these things I've trained inadvertently Mm -hmm. through just ad ad nauseum repetition. Go means go on ahead of me. We obviously use that in agility, but I use it at home all the time because it means go out the door and get out of my way. (laughs) Go down the stairs and get out of my Mm -hmm. way, right? So, and, and I had no idea, but I'm just super, super consistent that that is always what I say. Every morning when I'm half awake and I just want them to go down the stairs so I can walk down without, you know, tripping. So I think some people do that really naturally. And especially like the more people you have in your household, the harder than yeah, it is it absolutely. is for a dog and the the better it can be to get some help and, and find ways to be really consistent in what everybody's yeah. telling the dog. That's one of the biggest challenges for sure. I, uh, one of my dogs actually has been training me lately and that is, uh, we'd come upstairs, eat dinner, time to settle down. And he, and this is my old, my currently my oldest dog would start getting kind of rambunctious and like howl at me. He starts talking to me and I'd get up and go get bully sticks and give them to all the dogs. And pretty soon I realized (laughs) he trained me to do that. And he knew exactly how to tell me that that's what he needed. And pretty soon every night I was giving them bully sticks and I, one day it clicked in my head. Oh yeah, look, wait a minute. Yeah. Well, we kind of already talked about it, but would you advise all pet owners to pursue some kind of training with their dogs? And if so, what kind of training would you advise them to do? So, yeah, I I think, um, you know, when you bring that puppy home, I think that's the critical time to do training uh, is is with the puppy because it's a great way to build a bond with the puppy and build a relationship with the puppy. The problem is most, a lot of, not most, but a lot of people will do that. And then the end game over, you know, they don't really do any training beyond that unless they start to have behavior problems. And what we've found over many years of doing this, my trainers and I is, I mean, it's obvious dogs go through, uh, 
developmental stages, just like just like humans do, right? And even when we do puppy training, um, if we just kind of put that on the shelf and we don't do anything else, they go through adolescent periods, which can be really challenging. And then, um, you know, that you typically can be a little bumpy. And then we the dog gets into, uh, you know, maturity, physical maturity, and then they may have some other kind of things crop up. Crop, crop up. So, you know, the best thing you can do is space out training over the first two to three years of your dog's lifetime. And if you're actually consistent with that, that is going to get you nine times out of 10, a really stable, lovely pet dog. It's going to, or at least it's going to really grease the skids for that to happen. I mean, genetics and temperament are so much of that, but um, that consistent doesn't have to be full. It doesn't have to be, you know, constant, but revisiting that stuff over and over over the first few years of the dog's life um, really can make a huge impact. So then can you help our listeners understand what to look for if they're wanting to start basic training classes or look for a one-on-one trainer? Yeah, it's a little tricky to be honest because anybody can call themselves a dog trainer. Uh, there is no sort of uh, regulation in our industry. There's many certifications and some certifications are greater than others. I would say as a general rule of thumb, uh, more certifications is certainly helpful, but it's not a guarantee of anything. You know, it depends on what sort of methodologies you're comfortable with, but make sure one of, one of the biggest mistakes that people make is they don't ask the trainer how they train and they don't, and even if they do, they don't really get into it very far um, because no one's going to just flat out tell you, I'm going to, you know, slap a, an electronic collar on your dog and zap it. Like very few people are actually, very few trainers are actually going to say that. And even people that may not use e-collars, but that are going to use some sort of punishment, they're not going to flat out tell you that they're going to punish your dog when they're wrong. So one of my favorite questions to ask is of a, of a potential trainer is, what do you do if my dog gets it right? And what are we going to do if my dog gets it wrong? And that in particular should give you some good information. And I'm not going to tell people, you know, what type of training that they should or shouldn't do. I obviously have opinions about that, but you have, what's really critical is you have to be comfortable with uh, the style of training that your trainer is going to advise or or perform upon your dog. That's really important because if there's a big gap there, um, and even as a positive trainer, I've had very few clients over the years, but it's happened where, you know, they've wanted to go a more punitive route or or just using tools or whatnot that I'm not comfortable with. And, you know, honestly, there's usually some conflict there and, you know, it ends up not working out. So whether you're, you know, looking to solely use cookies or whether you're more comfortable with using things like prong collars or whatnot, make sure that you talk to the trainer and ask specifically about, you know, styles of training and tools and all that kind of stuff so that you don't end up in a position where I've had multiple clients end up in a position where they've paid thousands and thousands of dollars for a board and train non-refundable deposit to find out that the, you know, it's a, it's a shock collar trainer and, and they've lost a lot of money because they didn't ask those questions. So yeah. Yeah, it's tough. I had a situation. I was teaching an agility foundation class for the local club. And I I guess it was the wife that had signed up for the class, but the husband showed up with the dog and he didn't understand why we wanted to give the dog Mm -hmm. food. Right. He thought the dog should just do it because Because he's, you know, really biddable and because he said so. That was that gentleman's perspective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But 
I'm I'm not that kind of trainer. I don't have a a way to help your dog learn agility without positive reinforcement. So it really just wasn't a good match. match. And and they, you know, they came to two classes and then stopped coming and I I don't know if they got a refund or not, but it, you know, I still kind of felt bad and of course I felt bad for the dog cuz he really liked yeah. it, but yeah. You know, you want yeah. you want a good match with your trainer, especially to your point when it, it gets very, very expensive and it can. Yeah. yeah. And so so what kinds of advice should people run away from if they hear it from their trainer then? Um one thing that I see that's typically a red flag is um if they're talking well, there's many things, but some quick ones. Alpha alpha like you must be the alpha you know, talking about dominance theory, pack theory, those sorts of things. Those are all very outdated models of training, you know, popularized by, by TV personalities that really have no basis in, in fact or actual science or application. So that's one. The other one that's typically can be a bit of a red flag is when they guarantee the training. Mm-hmm. If they guarantee that your dog will do X at the end of X time period, I know that sounds appealing as like a consumer because none of us, you know, want to feel like what we're spending a bunch of money on might not work, but dogs are also living, breathing animals and beings, and you cannot guarantee anything. I as a trainer, I can guarantee that I will do the very best of my ability to change your dog's behavior, but I can't guarantee what you're going to do at home. I can't guarantee that you're going to follow through. I can't guarantee that someone in your household is going to, I don't know, do something wacky and, and disrupt the training or, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing. It's, it's, it's a red, it's definitely a red flag. So if you see that, I would say either run the other way, or if you're in too far, like start asking a lot of questions because um, that tends to be a little dicey. Yeah. I think for a board and train, a good, like a, something you want to hear is the trainer should be telling you how much work you're going to have to do mm-hmm. after the board and train. Yep. Yep. It's very, very important to recognize that it's not just magic because they'll have some reinforcement history for those behaviors when they come back to you. But then you have to start putting money in the bank. Absolutely. That's what I always tell people because we actually do. And it's funny, the, the, the tide is shifting a little bit in the positive reinforcement community for many years, uh, board and train and even day training where the, the client handed the dog off to the dog was like a big no, no in the positive reinforcement community, but it's, it's changing. And, and I've been myself and through where I worked at, you know, when I got kind of my feet wet was uh, there are positive facilities doing board and trains and day trains. And what I always tell the the client is we are professional dog trainers. That is our job. And so it's a lot easier for us to get these behaviors in a, you know, a shorter period of time than you would ever be able Mm -hmm. to do. And then we, you know, we get them going, we get the the fluency and the understanding for the dog, and then we hand the dog back off to you. And at least now you, you have the momentum and your dog has the understanding. It's up to you to keep that ball rolling, right? So like we were talking about earlier, it's up to the client to maintain the behaviors, but they didn't have to create the behaviors because creating these right. behaviors, it can be really complicated, right? And every dog is right. different and there is no single formula. So that's why we're the professionals and that's why... We do what we do. And when you're adding in another variable, yes. right? So if you're trying to train the, I mean, we see this in agility all the time, and it's, it's one of the things that makes it difficult is you're training the human and the mm-hmm. dog at the same time. And so if you can remove that variable and you are sort of just staring at the dog and can think to yourself and not be like, 
okay, I know what the dog needs. The dog needs you to give it the cookie when it does the thing, except you keep not doing that because you can't get the cookie out fast enough or you're not very good with the clicker, right? I mean, all of these things happen. All of those things take, you know, time to build up. It makes sense to me that that tide is turning, that when you really look at it from that perspective, it makes a lot of sense. This is a, a great segue into kind of our next topic, which is transitions from a dog's perspective. So like a transition in life, a family brings home a new baby, maybe they move to a new house, someone starts working from home, or maybe they are going back to an office. What can those impacts be on a dog? and Why might they be hard? So kind of like what we were talking about earlier, dogs really thrive on routine and predictability. And when we have major life transitions, like having a baby come to the household or moving or changing jobs or things like that, and those routines get upended and there's not consideration put into how the dog is going to handle this, which I'm not judging because life happens and sometimes the dog isn't the top priority, sure. right? So, um, but yeah, it can be, it can be rough for dogs. And, and again, talking about the reinforcement history, it, it's relevant, right? If the dog has been reinforced for X behaviors at X times and X environments, and then all of a sudden the environment changes, whether that's, you know, let's like the easy example is a baby comes in, right? So the baby comes in and suddenly the dog that was on the couch all the time or, you know, getting walks every morning or, you know, all these things that mm -hmm. the dog was able to do before and the dog found reinforcing before. And now, you know, no, you can't be on the couch because I'm holding the baby or no, we're not going to go on a walk because I, I, I was up all night dealing with the screaming child, <laughs> you know, whatever it is, <laughs> um, it changes the dog's life. And so it's, it's understandable that they, they may struggle with that. And if they're struggling with it and it's not addressed, then you may have some behaviors that, that pop up that may be new or, or maybe they were minimized before or minimal before. Or I think what happens a lot is um, there may have been some, you know, moderately undesirable behaviors happening, but either they were, you know, the, the family has the bandwidth to deal with it or they just weren't obnoxious enough for anybody to do anything about it. And then when there's a baby involved or there's less time or, or what and you're way you, more, you're stressed more stressed out. out, whatever it is, then suddenly those behaviors become a problem, right? Right. So that's where it gets tough. So because I have multiple dogs, um, people usually ask me if I would suggest they get a second dog so that they keep the first dog happy. And maybe it's because my first two dogs were Vislas and they are notoriously kind of crazy. I usually tell them that if they're having a hard time giving their current dog enough exercise, that getting a second one won't help that problem. In my experience, it made it harder to have two dogs than it was to have one. Um, but is that something you agree with or what would you tell people if they asked you that question? Typically, I say something similar. Typically, you know, it, it, it can vary per situation. I have had a few instances where getting another dog can be a good solution. But if, if, if the, the problem specifically is dog A is bored and he's digging holes in my backyard and he's chewing the hose and he's barking at the neighbor's dog, should I get another dog to entertain him? My response is always, well, do you want to deal with all three of those problems times two? Mm -hmm. um, because that's <laughs> probably what you're going to get. Um, I will say sometimes dogs with separation anxiety uh, can do better with other dogs or there, there are some instances where adding another dog might actually not be a terrible idea, but generally that that's the typical scenario. Elisa's, you know, 
oh, my dog's bored. Let me get him a buddy. And it's like, yeah, no, that's not going <laughs> to. doesn't work that yeah, way. It's not really going to help. It's just going to make you have twice the amount of work that you do now. It's not to say that I'm against yep. multiple dogs because. No, not at all. But uh, the reason for getting the second dog should be you really want a second dog. Yes. Not that you're yeah. looking for dog A to be less annoying. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, man. All right. So we've talked about pet dog training and how to find a trainer for that. How about if now I'm looking for a sport dog trainer? Maybe I really agree that um, I should be doing more training with my sort of two-year-old dog and, and not just relying on puppy training. But I think the idea of going to an obedience class over and over again is super boring. Um how would someone go about finding a sport dog trainer and really mostly what should they be looking for in a trainer in the sport they're interested in? I think that's a, it's, it's a really good question. I'm not sure I have a perfect answer for it. I think part of my answer would be um, similar to what we were talking about earlier and that make sure that you feel good about how that trainer is training whatever it is that that you're interested in and and one thing I do recommend is and I as an instructor I'm happy for sport people to ask me this and it's actually quite rare that it happens but um if you you know find a barn hunt class or a nose work class or whatever it is reach out to the instructor and ask them can you just come observe and and don't don't assume you can do it for free you know say I'd be happy to pay you you know x or whatever your class fee is can I just come observe a class or two? And I, I think that's really important because A, it's going to allow you to observe without your dog being there or without, you know, much investment, um, how that instructor instructs, how they run the class, how the dogs in that class are behaving. Are you comfortable with it? You know, is the instructor managing the environment? Um, and, you know, just, just what is their teaching style? Uh, and, you know, again, going back to, you know, what is their methodologies? Are they using all positive reinforcement? Or is there some punishment involved? How do you feel about the vibe of the class? Because, um, you know, we're all dog sports people. I'm sure we've all been in some sort of class environment or seminar environment or who knows what, where you're just, you, you, you kind of dread it and it's not really fun. Mm -hmm. And, that's that, that sucks if it sucks for you it's gonna suck for the dog <laughs> like you know yeah. so because if you're miserable then it, nobody's having fun and I've actually left uh group class specific group classes because I wasn't having fun you know the 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 environment was not reinforcing to me and I was dreading going to class and if I'm dreading going to agility class then that tells me something is not right yeah. <laughs> well and it, it, I think that's really really great advice I don't know why I hadn't thought of so typically it's called auditing where you're taking a class but you're not sort of working you're not participating and typically you're still going to pay a fee mm -hmm. for auditing because you're you're still yeah, getting information exactly. from yeah. the class yeah. I think that is a really important point and that to just ask, too, what sort of is typical in the sport. Yeah. So agility tends yeah. to be really positive reinforcement focused, partly 
because of what we're trying to get the dogs to do, we have to help them understand a lot of things. And other sports are, are not so much that way, even though my my very limited understanding of like gun dog sports, one, the dogs can be working at an enormous mm-hmm. distance. So using an electronic mm-hmm. collar is very, common. very um, common. And so if that's not something you're comfortable with, it's not to say that you couldn't train your dog for hunting tests and stuff, but you're going to have to be really picky about the, the trainer that you mm-hmm. find if that's something that you don't want to do. And it's more prevalent in that sport for, you know, like a whole host of reasons. So I think that's something else to kind of look yeah. into is like, what's what's common? How do people train this sport in general? And one other thing I would say, too, is if you sign up for a dog sport class, again, whether it's agility, obedience, whatever it is, and you do a couple sessions and you're not in love with the teaching style or the instructor, that's okay. And don't be afraid to go look elsewhere. You're not a horrible person. You know, they're not a horrible instructor. I, I, I've had certain students come to me and I just wasn't a good fit for them. And that's okay. Like, it doesn't mean they're a bad student or I'm a bad instructor. It's, it's, it's important because it's kind of, I mean, you guys know, it, I don't, intimate isn't the right word, but you have to really be able to like communicate well with people Mm -hmm. and people just have different styles of communicating. Um, And so it's not, everybody is going to be a great fit for every instructor and vice versa. And that's all right. So if you're really set on doing nose work and the first person you try, you're just not feeling it and keep looking. And obviously for all of us, we all live in areas that are pretty dense and have a lot of options. Obviously, if you know, you live in the middle of nowhere, it can be more challenging, but then there's lots of online options too. And don't, and it's normal. And I, I think it's important for people that are maybe new to dog sports. It's normal to, I don't want to say instructor hop because that sounds bad, but it's, it's okay to look for someone that's a good fit for you. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Yep. I so wish I had had that advice with Tug, you know, the first instructor that I had with him did not understand how nervous he was. He had been used to working with all very biddable dogs. He was a super nice guy, but he scared the pants off my poor Vizsla. And I didn't recognize it. And and so we really struggled in that class. And But I did get some good advice at, at some point, and I don't remember who told it. It might have been Daisy Peel. At some point, um, she said, you will outgrow your trainer. So that's the mm-hmm. other thing that I've learned is that totally. sometimes you get to a point where your trainer doesn't have the ability to help you along any further in your journey. And that doesn't make them a bad person or a bad fit for where you were at the time. But but sometimes you also kind of outgrow what they could teach you and need to find help elsewhere. Quickly speaking to that specifically, that is exactly how I became a professional dog trainer. Because I had been, I had actually started agility before I started training professionally. And the instructor I had at the time did not get my dog. And and I I was butting up against the wall with them. And I started looking elsewhere and ended up uh, driving an hour and a half to go somewhere else um, for for classes. And then um, that person actually offered me a job down down the road. So it was kind of interesting. So yeah, don't, you know, don't feel stuck. Like if it's not working for you, then look elsewhere because there's always going to be other options. Again, maybe you might have to go online or you might have to get creative, but don't feel forced into staying with an instructor that isn't working for you. The other important point to make about that is it's easy for us to say now and you are going, yep, that makes perfect sense. But I think it's important to add that Part of the reason it's so difficult is that what you will find is dog sport communities are pretty small and that 
you know, it can be a little bit awkward to say I left such and such a trainer and someone's still with them or it's awkward. Let's just, let's just be honest. It's always a little bit weird. It's not me. It's you. (laughs) I know. (laughs) And you're still going to likely see that person. You're going to, you're going to see them and you want to maintain a good rapport with them. And they should understand if you go about things in the, in the right way, but that, you know, that's part of the the difficulty as well is that. Mature um, instructor should have had that happen yep. before at some point and just realize that that's you know how the cookie crumbles and hopefully not to take it too personally but it's it's tough. yeah you would tough. hope so <laughs> yep um and so final question for you liz are there certain types of dogs that are right for sport i would say yes and no yes or let me start with a no no in that i i think most many dogs can benefit from training that is, even if you don't end up competing, you know, training that is a little bit outside the box of what we would call quote unquote, you know, basic obedience or basic manners. Um, because I really think it, it benefits the relationship and it certainly will make the human half a better trainer. Yes. As in, (laughs) I, I wish I had a dollar for every person uh, who has said to me over the years, oh, my dog would be great at agility. You should see him <laughs> jumping around and jumping off the couch and climbing the wall in my backyard and, you know, doing all this wacky stuff. And sure, maybe that dog can like physically do these things. But if the dog leaves his house and he's flat as a pancake, you know, shaking and cowering, like that dog probably isn't a good candidate for sport stuff. You know, the dog has to have a pretty stable temperament. Uh, They need to have some basic training on board. They need to be okay around other dogs and other people they don't know in some capacity. So I actually, it it takes a pretty stable dog, resilient dog to do well in dog sports, especially if they're our first sport dog, because those poor dogs have to deal with a lot of us bumbling around and not knowing what we're doing. And they're going to endure a lot of crappy training and being dragged all over Timbuktu. So I, I think as you get better and better, you can get away with less and less of a perfectly stable dog. But um, yeah, that's my answer. <laughs> yeah, I actually think that's a fairly common scenario that somebody and it's not that dissimilar from what you experienced with Tug, Alyssa, right? That, that you have a dog that um, maybe you don't know has issues because you don't go anywhere, do 8 million <laughs> yeah. things in public, right? They just hang out at your house and they seem perfectly normal. And you take them to a training class and they, they okay. do okay. Yeah. And you guys, you yeah. guys have fun. And you're like, great, we're going to enter our first competition. And then they are just absolutely floored by the competition environment, by the, by the noise. Like I think about something like fly ball that's really, really <laughs> noisy and they just lose it. Like they can't perform and as we talked about was that the first episode like their anxiety just outweighs their ability to to do these behaviors that they have a pretty good reinforcement history for and that can be incredibly just heartbreaking and difficult for a first time sport dog person because you've already put so much effort into Mm -hmm. training this dog and you know they know how to do things that You've never trained a dog to do before and you're so excited and you want other people to see it. So it's just something to think about because, gosh, that's a tough situation to be in. And then usually people get another dog if they're really committed to the sport. (laughs) (laughs) 
And another dog and another dog. <laughs> yep. And We've another dog. <laughs> it's not to say, so I do want to say, though, that it's not to say that that doing the training isn't a bad thing with Tug. He loved doing the training right. and he loved doing it in places where he was comfortable. And that for him was so great for him mentally. It it just meant he wasn't great for competition. And had I been a better dog trainer and maybe known the things I know now, I might have been able to work through that. But with the limited knowledge I had then, I definitely couldn't. Um, so it's not to say that you shouldn't pursue sports. It's just that um, yep. you you may need to adjust your expectations for what they yes. can and can't accomplish in that. Sport. I think that's a great point. That's a great way to say it. Yep. <laughs> Realistic expectations are good. <laughs> and it's hard to know what to expect yeah. when, when you're new. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's what part of what we're hoping to demystify here right? conversation <laughs> well right and then if you run into that situation maybe you'll have the inkling in the back of your mind like I heard something about yeah. that before it's not that my dog's that's the other thing my dog's not being bad they're not they're no. you know we'll probably say that a lot they're not trying to be defiant they're they're freaked out yeah. it's a completely weird environment for them so exactly yep before we leave today, we're going to let you know what's coming up next. We are going to keep on keeping on with our conversation with Liz and talk about finding a doggy daycare. So please join us next time. Cool. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Liz. So that's all for today's episode. Don't forget to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast and join us for our next episode in two weeks. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to go out and have some fun with your dogs. Talk to you next time.